Welcome to Moment Talk. I'm your host, Shiso Moa. And today's guest is an ex-DJ. In fact, the beat you are hearing is from the man himself. But now, he is making well over six-figure as a vice president of a company. He's been over to 36 countries, a family man. He's going to give us a story about corporate life and his challenge in college careers and who inspired him to do so. And one of them was his mom, who taught him a very, very good lesson. And that was compassion to be the leader that he is now. But first, let's thank the sponsors and let's get to it. Are you looking for the latest Hmong inspired menswear? Well, look no further. She sells menswear, makes suit accessories, uh, apparels, and you can find them at www.xixomenswear.com. Hello, everyone. We are super excited. We have a gentleman that is from the central of the United States. He's from Dallas, Texas. We yes, all sir. welcome you. Chen, how's it going, man? It's a pleasure. Pleasure being here. And uh, technically in Toronto, but um, family's up here. So wife and daughter's up here and my little baby. So transplant as Canadian for now until I get back to Dallas, hopefully warmer weather. Hey, how are you enjoying up? Toronto? You're out there for work, right? Uh, up here for work, up here for uh, family. So my, my daughter got accepted into one of the top STEM uh, programs at school. So she's basically in a, in a very leading private school here locally in, in Toronto. Um, and then I had my, my son about nine months ago. So he's both Canadian and an American. So he, we just got his U.S. passport yesterday. So all exciting things. Exciting, exciting, which we will carry more about your career and your education, which is this topic is about, Chen. Sure. Uh, not only your daughter, too, but your even your your dad, you know? Your dad yeah. was heavily stretched himself going to school and pushing you as well. Yep. Uh, and, your, and you have all your siblings as well. Yep. Uh, has great, not only great incomes and careers, but really high in intellectually in school and careers. Uh, which yeah. Uh, absolutely. I think in, in the, you know, when your family is our first generations uh, coming from the jungles of Laos and Thailand to uh, a, a new place like the United States, it's always a struggle for um, uh, families that are trying to adapt. Um, and really early on, I will tell you that uh, my, my father, specifically my mom as well, they're both supportive of our education. Um, I think in the Hmong community, Sometimes that's get stepped downgraded just because you know I got to do everything what my friends are doing, um, and they had they thankfully, whether through uh, through spankings or through encouragement, <laughs> right, um, uh, make sure that we were at uh, at our best, and and I think that's that's extremely important. And it's also um, you know my dad also being former military, uh, very disciplined. Now, every Saturday morning you wake up and you clean your room and then you go study more. <laughs> kind of I, I, wow, it seemed like that flip flop or the belt sure works wonder. I, I kid, I kid. I condone any violence, okay? I, I condone any violence by all means. But all jokes aside, you know, tell the audience or the listener one thing we do not know about you. Um, so, interesting enough, I, I, uh, I'm a music lover. Um, I would say that uh, was a once a professionally trained musician a long time ago, but one thing that I guess your audience would not know is that um, I ran an entertainment company, uh, was an international DJ for a little bit, I did some stuff in Europe. Um, if you needed a corporate party in an event, weddings, those type of scenarios, uh, I would do those events all through the southeast of the U.S. So um, did um, political figures, um, Mary Kay parties and conventions in Dallas um, and all over. So not just your typical um, Hmong events, but these are you know, what I would call more uh, mainstream American American style stuff. Wow, that's completely amazing. What kind of genre of music is it? Like hip hop mixing? Um, yeah, so- EDM, uh, we were fist pumping over here. Yeah, well, um, I grew up in the 80s. So um, just to let you viewers know, I mean, with the gray hair, I, I'm 42. Um, but I grew up in, a, in Dallas when there wasn't a whole lot of Hmong people around. So. Uh, funny enough, my uncle was in Dallas. He started one of the first Hmong bands when they first came over from Laos. You know, he had the big shaggy hair and playing and um, playing Smoke on the River. But I grew up in the big 80s hair band. Um, but I would say that my genre of music that I love is taking some of those 80s, 90s music, remixing them into like an EDM format uh, that's still familiar, a little bit of hip hop, 90s hip hop-ish. Um, and so 
those would be to the type of music. So if you were to ask me, who do I typically listen to? Uh, if I'm driving from Dallas to Toronto, it'll probably be a Tiesta, Dead Mouse, uh, uh, any of those top uh, EDM DJs that are primarily European focused. Now, I will say that there's some pretty cool music coming out of Southeast Asia uh, and the K-pop stuff, and that they're doing some cool remixes off that too now. So um, very, very interesting. So I grew up with all kinds of music. Uh, as as a musician, so play a little bit of piano, more of a vocalist, but uh, uh, that's what I've done. That's awesome, and we did not know about you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's so cool. And what, and what a quite of a twist here, becoming uh, I mean, out of college in Norfolk University to getting to in a consulting job from ADP for PeopleSoft from Kronos into yep. JCP Partners into cons- consulting, and then Oracle, one of the biggest conglomerates out there yep. too now. Yep. Uh, tell us more about that because what we want to focus on, Jen. And, and- yeah, uh, you know, I have always been a bit of a computer nerd when growing up. Um, uh, my mom bought our first computer. It was a Amstrad uh, 64, six, six, yeah, 640 kilobyte machine, no hard drive whatsoever, two floppy drives. And uh, it, I remember my mom buying it for about $2,000. And then my dad came home like, what did you do? And so I was 12, maybe 13 at the time. And as my dad went, six months later, my dad went to his uh, uh, PhD. He was working on his PhD program. And I took the computer apart, did not know how to put it back together. <laughs> so I had three days to put it back together. Uh, and my mom basically said, you know, we spent a lot of money for this machine. It's not a toy. You need to figure out how to put it back together. Otherwise, dad will kill you. So that was a lot of motivation to really getting to the computer uh, science industry. And as, as I looked at my, my career now, looking back, I would say that just general curiosity about how machines work, computers in general, engineering, those type of things led me down that career. Um, I first went to work first before I actually finished my college degree. And, and, there's, and that actually has probably more merit to, to your listeners because um, I, I'm in a hiring role now. So when I look at resumes, the first question I ask is like, it's not about whether they have a college degree, but it's do they have the skills to perform the do- job day one? Do I need to coach this guy? Do I need to hold this person through the, the software development um, uh, requirements? So what I did early on is I got my Microsoft certifications, um, went and got uh, the work experience, and then that actually opened the doors to working at um, ADP, the largest outsourcing company in the world, at Oracle, the largest, um, one of the largest enterprise software companies in the world next to, to SAP. And, and in those roles, I was a software engineer, but it actually quickly transitioned because I went through an exercise um, early on in my career I was writing software, they're paying me a good you know, 50, 60 bucks an hour, and they take that my software and they sell it for a million. And I'm sitting here thinking, what am I doing wrong? I'm literally teaching these computers how to do the work, but this sales guy who can barely spell Oracle can go out and sell a $10 million contract. And then he's got all this commissions, all this money that he made, and I'm the guy in the back that's you know, sweating eight to 12, 20, 20 hours a, a day writing these code. So that's when I woke up and I said, there's got to be a better opportunity beyond just being an engineer. Did that also help you pursue more because your dad went to about 11 years to get his PhD and yep. he was working third shift? Yep. Did that kind of open your eyes a little bit too while you kept pursuing? Because from um, what you're saying, I mean, this is a double question because from what you're saying to our listeners, it's kind of like, you would hire uh, someone with slightly more, at a 100% ratio, like slightly more 67% uh, experience and a 30% education. Granted, they're both important, but still, you choose a little bit more experience over the education. Absolutely. I, I will do that any day. I, I think um, it's actually becoming mainstream. Google, the Teslas, a lot of these leading software companies are basically saying, look, we don't really need your computer science. I mean, that basically teaches you theory and structure of the code. We need somebody who's willing to experiment, and they may not write the best code, but it works. And we can reiterate and rebuild from that, um, and that's more valuable because in the, in the technology space, things are mo- moving so fast. And so 
the question you specifically asked about um, my dad, you know, taking 10, 12 years, a decade to get his, his, his college education and then his PhD. Um, I would say that the thing about my dad that I appreciate the most is the fact that he is committed. Um, I have never met another man in my life. And, th and this is uh, one of the things I'm very blessed to have is that when he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. it. It may take him 10 years or 12 years, but he's going to see it through. And then at the end of the day, um, it's something that he, he himself is extremely proud of, but I'm also proud of the fact that he didn't give up, you know, coming from, again, like the story is you come from the jungle, you don't speak English. You, you, you work third shift. You got to take care of three kids and you're operating on two and a half, three hours of sleep every day for about 10 years. And then, you know, you suffer through all that. And I see that as, as a child growing up now as an adult, and I'm thinking, would, could I have that kind of patience and commitment? And I would tell you very few people can. And even on top of that, that they, my mom and dad are still very close. You know, they, they have been married for many, many years. And I see a lot of relationships even American and Hmong struggle and suffer when one person has to work so hard to get to where they want to be. The other person sometimes gets felt like they get left behind. Uh, but that's, that's a commitment to their relationship because I would say that um, that's what I've learned is commitment, uh, loyalty, and, and really the drive to really prove to yourself, not to anybody else, but prove to yourself that you can get there. Not only do your dad is one of your heroes and uh, an amazing guy, but that's just one of your, the biggest influence out of, out of your three. I mean, second is your mom, am I correct? Yeah. She, uh, she taught you a very, very important lesson. Uh, now you being a vice president, when you look down on people and hiring, my, my bad, not look down, but hire these individuals, you have compassion for these individuals. You tell me about that story about, yeah, uh, I think we, I shared a story at one time that, uh, so my dad's kind of my, my mentor for, as far as very difficult decisions, judgment calls, um, being able to look at a situation from different perspectives. So that's kind of my dad. My mom is definitely the, the more compassionate um, person, being able to understand emotional intelligence. And one of the stories that I think I told you is that I had a house that was being remodeled, and um, in many cases... Uh, we would buy houses and flip them, those type of scenarios. And we would hire um, helpers to come in. And in some cases, these helpers are undocumented people. I mean, they're just trying to get a dollar to, to feed themselves and their family or send money to, back down to Mexico or wherever. And in one case, we had a gentleman that was helping us take up the carpet. And the fan, the ceiling fan was turning, and he wasn't really watching what he was doing. And I mean, destroyed the ceiling fan, parts of the ceiling at the same time. <laughs> and I can tell you, I was extremely upset. But then, you know, my mom was in the room and she saw that happen. She's like, Jen, you realize that this guy probably is living by the, by the hour. And you realize he probably doesn't have the papers to even stay here in the United States. If you don't even pay him for his food today, he may not eat today. And that's, that's the reality they live in. We could easily be in that situation. You know, we were fighting to leave a country with communists trying to kill Hmong people. And we were very lucky just to be able to side with the Americans. And some of those Americans at least uh, sponsored us over to the States. So you could be actually a rice farmer sitting on an elephant somewhere wishing that you were carrying these carpets and seeing the things you've seen and done, done the things you've done. So you need to have a little bit more patience with, with, with folks like and so those are, those are definitely value points. When you grow up, you learn to experience what other people's perspective is. And, and she's right. Um, that was a very important lesson I learned that day that says, as much education as I may have, as much of a title I may have, at the end of the day, we're all still human beings and we all make mistakes. And I will tell you, he, when he broke the fan in the ceiling, he was extremely... Um, hesitant to even walk in the room because he in most cases people yell and scream at him i just say hey it's okay uh we'll pay you for the day he's like well i can pay you for the damages i'm like it's okay I, this is more expensive than the money you you would have and that and that shows a bit of compassion a bit of mercy and, and i think um when i look at that experience and i look at uh the projects i've led the teams i led um the influences my style of leadership uh it's about 
compassion for your team first because you never know what's going on. You know, I've led teams from as small as two to as large as a thousand people. And in some cases, those team members have things that's going on in their personal life that's impacting their work and performance. And before you go in and say, I'm going to fire you because you showed up late, there might be a reason why. You never know. Uh, and so you got to work through those, those human emotions to understand what's driving and, and, and making people make those decisions and, and, and how to influence them. That is truly amazing. These lessons definitely hit you at home and made you uh, think different as a leader and as you're growing as a leader and, of course, climbing up corporate ladder, but yep. getting into now a vice president yep. uh, made you really think about these things. And you're absolutely right, thinking of consideration of these other people uh, that work for you and in your team. You were um, born in 76 in Thailand. Yep. And, you know, you guys left, obviously, the Vietnam War after that. And, and your dad decided to be in, out of any place. It could be Wisconsin, California, <laughs> but nowhere to be found. Dallas. Dallas, Texas. Huh. Yeah. The story on that one is, is uh, actually very short. Um, we, I was born in a refugee camp in one of the refugee camps in northern Thailand and left two weeks after I was born. To the states and when we got to the states i think uh my my dad and maybe two other families was the only Hmong people in dallas and we were living in assisted uh um apartment government apartment system place and it was even to the point to where um if it wasn't for and i call him grandpa carl grandpa carl and grandma Metty, they they were part of the methodist church that sponsored my parents and they 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 basically taught my parents the American culture, you know, how to go to the grocery store, how to check the mail, um, where to catch the bus to go to work, you know, how to cash a paycheck. I mean, you didn't, in the jungle, you had nobody to teach you that, right? And so uh, life skills, and if it wasn't for, for Grandpa Carl and, and, and Grandma Metty, these things, my parents would never be where they are. Um, and it was through a lot of faith and prayer. I will tell you that uh, my family is Christian and um, I will, I will tell you that I'll probably be, I am the most honest Christian out there. I'll tell you how it is, whether you like it or not. Uh, there, there is no, there is no, um, uh, uh, leniency from my perspective, but that's how I operate. I, I rather, I rather be black and white versus be anywhere in the gray. Your dad's now a pastor and that's super yep. awesome. Let's go back into your, your schooling Yep. and how you decided on that because, you know, you you came out from Norfolk University, got your bachelor's. But prior to that, too, I mean, you were coding ever since you were a kid because you mentioned about having an old school computer. Yeah. <laughs> that year, maybe iPhone 10 is oh, yeah, <laughs> far yeah, beyond absolutely. superior to that thing. But anyhow, um, tell me about, about your schooling. I mean, did you ever at one point in, in school and college, did you know what? I'm just going to drop out of college. You know, I'd rather get the experience what Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg would have said. Like, that's, you know, it's, school's not that important. Well, I, I would say it, it, it depends. You know, a lot of people ask me, uh, should I go to school? And I said, well, do you have skills that are remarkable before you, you answer that, school, that, that question? Uh, I have several friends of mine that are uh, what I would call Ivy League graduates. They got MBAs from the Harvards and, and Stanford, and they, they're sitting on a mountain of debt, $100,000, of the debt. And in many cases, their salaries don't pay for that. And then if you add that student debt on top of a mortgage, two kids, two car payments, credit cards, you're immediately into maybe a million dollars worth of debt. So um, my, my perspective is a little bit different. I'm all about ROI, return on investment, right? Return on your time, returning on your, your school, your degree, things like that. Is it really gonna worth your time? If you have invested $100,000 into your education, Besides just learning something that you want to love to do, is it really going to pay back $100,000? That's the question I always ask. Or it may be better. And it was funny enough, I had a friend of mine took $100,000, bought Bitcoin at $300. What? It's 20. It's at 20, 20 all close 24. Yeah, 24,000. So I'm, I'm holding too. I'm holding. Yeah, yeah. So I, 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 we can talk about cryptocurrency. I love that that's, stuff. So that's a different another topic. Another topic. Yeah. Anyhow. But, but that's, that's what I ask. I'm like, if you're going to go and get a degree in history, it may not be advisable. 
you want to get skills that you can market day one as soon as you're out of the university. In some of the cases, would that be a law degree? Maybe, if you have the right experience and you, met, you get into the right uh, practice, um, at the right firm, those type of scenarios. Maybe it's a doctor. That's a long journey. And, and I, I, have, I have cousins of mine that are doctors and I praise them because uh, I don't have that patience to go through 10 years of school and then do residency and all that stuff and see blood everywhere. Um, that, that's just not me. So I, I was kind of lazy and I took the coding approach because I was like, well, what skills can I take with me anywhere on the planet? And I remember what my dad says, it's what's in your head that's marketable. It's not what's in your hand. Even mm. though, even that though. One more time, a little bit louder for the guys back there. It's what's in your head that is marketable, not what's in your hand. And the reason why he said that is because even though my dad's an engineer, they, they buy flip homes uh, in real estate, and he's done a lot of st interesting things, and, and you know, he can build anything. And so that's what's amazing about him. He's got that engineering mindset. And I remember we were working on a house and I was pulling down the, the, the drywalls and it was hot and sweaty. It's hot in, in, in Texas in the middle of summer. And they just bought this house to flip and I'm just ripping this stuff down. And, and I'm thinking, oh, if I help my dad flip this house, I might make a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, you're 17. You don't know any better. And he just looked at me. He's like, there's a reason why there's a $2,000 computer sitting on your desk when we get back to the house. It's air conditioned. You can sit there. You can code. You're not out here sweating or 200 bucks, how long would it take you to write code and get somebody to pay you $200 for it? And at the time, I didn't know, right? So my dad was also an engineer that was uh, working in the oil and gas field too. So that's, you know, that's, that was his you know, full-time gig. And so I grow up now and I look at it and I'm like, I can probably get somebody, you know, right now, right? I can get somebody in India to write the same line of code that I would write for two to $3 an hour, and then I can take that line of code and sell it for a hundred grand somewhere in Silicon Valley. Or if it's my idea, I put a patent on it and then I can license it. And now for every time that code is run, I can make it a penny, right? So it is taking that mindset, that business mindset and basically saying, who's willing to buy? What price are they willing to buy it? And how do I market it to that person? And that's, that is so important because that's engineering plus marketing plus running a business all in your mind. So that's why I got into the, the whole coding and side of it. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, well, I don't know where I'm going to work. I don't know where I'm going to be. And if I have a laptop and an internet connection, I can work from anywhere. This is 17, 18 years old, Chen, Well, right? this, this was when I was 22. 22-year-old Chen. Yep. Finally it sounds grew up. Like so that's 17 now, 22. That was a very, very pivotal point right there. Yep. Uh, and again, you were just out of your first uh, your, your schooling at 21, yep. 22. Yep. That's a very big pivotal point. But that taught you a lesson of just working hard under the sun or just sitting in the AC and looking at screens all day and coding. Yep. And I, I was, I think at the time, uh, before Oracle bought out PeopleSoft, um, I was the youngest solution engineer at PeopleSoft writing code and doing the tech sales process. I was 23. Wow. And then you know, the sales guys are in their mid-40s, right? They've got the, the relationships with all these CEOs, CXOs, and there comes this Asian kid who's going to whiz them on how the software works and so that he can go out and close the deal. And that's, that's when I finally, it finally clicked that says, it's not what you write. It's what people or wanting and willing to buy. These corporate, you said, ADP and Oracle are some conglomerates. Yep. I mean, can you tell someone of the listeners out there, like, you know, how do I get something in there? Like the Google of the world, you know, we're talking massive. How do I get in there? How do I get my foot in there? Uh, I will tell you, um, well, let me tell you, it's probably the better story is part of uh, PeopleSoft Oracle before the Oracle acquisition. Um, I was 23, and by that time, I had had experience working in, in ADP doing uh, HR and payroll system conversion. So moving from one system to the next, and then designing conversion uh, software. So basically just retranslating something to something new. And so when uh, I had submitted my resume, and it was a blind submittal, by the way. It's, it's one of those, I won the lottery scenarios. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Um, 
PeopleSoft at the time, the, the hiring manager, a guy named Jason Averbrook, who now runs his own HR consulting firm, advisory firm, great guy. He's, he's one of my mentors too, career mentors. Um, it was my last interview and I had gone through a grueling three and a half months of interview from technical evaluations to, to presentations, um, to going through a panel discussion, to, they call it stump the chump, basically. They'll, there's three or four people that's on the panel that are super smart, and they ask, just start firing questions to you for 90 minutes and see if you survive or break. That's basically it. And then um, it finally came down to him, and, he, he's, and I'd already talked to his boss's boss, so um, he's, he's looking at my resume, and then there's a whole stack of about 500 resumes to, to the right of it. He looks right at me and he says, Chin, um, I've got 500 people here that's willing to come here and work at PeopleSoft. We pay very well. And he wrote the salary range on the wall. And he's like, where do you think you want to fall? I mean, dumb kid, right? I'm 23. And I'm like, well, yeah, I want the half million dollars. <laughs> Not knowing what it's going to take. And he's like, you realize if you're going to want that money, you're going to have to beat out these 500 people. And then I was a little... Um, Maybe overzealous and i was like well that's why you're talking to me right <laughs> so he kind of looked at me and says you know if you if you got the quote-unquote balls to say that kind of comment then i'm willing to give you a shot you got 90 days I'll bring you on 90 days and if you can't learn all 32 modules of peoplesoft and each module is about 300 pages long and get certified uh then you're not going to keep the job it seemed like there's two two things in this Confidence is key, but more importantly, you got your action better speak. You could be yep. a good talker, but let's see how good as your coder you are, right? Yep, yep. So you had, so you had both days. qualities, yeah. So I, I remember when I got the job, got the offer, I called my mom, and, you know, and my mom was super excited. And my dad, we all went to dinner. And my mom's like, well, what do you have to do? And I said, uh, I think I have to read a lot. And then I think I have to pass a test. Well, and I didn't know, because that was just the, the day I got the offer. And what I did not know is that the training program was about 50 pages long. And each page had about probably 24 to 36 hours worth of activity. And on top of that, you had to go to all the meetings, the sales meetings, the engineering meetings, the product meetings, the marketing meetings, to get everything in there. And the only time you had time to study was during the evening. And, uh, and at the same time, you had about two to three hours worth of coding but in, in the email, your boss needs to see you the next day. So it is basically taking a two-year semester program and condensing it down to 90 days. And at the, at the point of 90 days, they call it um, a solution engineering certification. And so what that means is that you have eight hours to present everything. They'll, one, one of the exercises value point presentation. So you got to be able to present to all the C-level executives at, at PeopleSoft uh, or the sales management team to say that you know your stuff. Then you have a technical evaluation, which they'll break something in the software. They had to figure out how to find it and fix it. And then show, show a custom built, and then they're going to try to poke holes at it. So all that is done in eight hours. And if you can pass that strenuous test, you get to keep your job. You get, quote, unquote, sales certified. Now you can go out and earn your commissions when you sell, help a sales guy sell their deal. And that was, I will tell you, um, companies that have that level of, um, that bar that's set, I, the, the failure rate is 90%, actually. Really high. Yeah, yeah ten, it's really high. Yeah, one to because, 10 ratio, yeah. Because um, what I did not know at the time, and for the listeners, is that when you, you, when you are in selling enterprise-level software, when we say enterprise-level software, we're not talking about Excel and PowerPoint. We're talking about uh, selling an entire accounting system for 2,000 users across the globe that has different accounting practices, different books, different things all at the same time. And that problem they're trying to solve are tens of millions of dollars. You cannot make a mistake. And if a penny's off, and the books are not balanced, guess who they're going to call? This is going to either be a lawsuit, or you're going to lose your job. Uh, I mean, it, things can be very bad. And so that's why I think that when you're, when you're in the enterprise market, that's why there was this 80 to 90% failure rate, because in many cases, they can't risk somebody making a mistake and losing a deal. Because there's, you know, there's only one Google that you can sell, right? And so that's, right. that's, 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 that's why. You... <laughs> 
you are now, let's fast forward now. You are currently the vice president of Blue Prism and been there for about, go by, it's going for almost two years now. Four years, um, actually. Four years now? Yep. I mean, you started from like, again, from Oracle, you know, being a consultant, you know, coder. And I mean, it's a huge resume of all these jobs you got. We're not going to shuffle them through because it's quite the list. Uh, but we're, t- we're talking about climbing corporate ladders today. Yep. And did you foresee yourself doing that? And, and- um, I wanted to do more than just coding. Uh, I mean, there's some people are just happy going to work eight to five, doing their coding and going home and, you know, do their fishing with the family and all. Um, I, I have different aspirations. I, and I think uh, a lot of what I want to do is really directly impacted with a couple of folks that, uh, that inspired me too. I mean, folks like Elon Musk, Gene Roddenberry and, and um, you know, the Amazon folks and things like that. Apple could my vision of of taking what technology is today and then really paving the way what it will be in the future so for the for the listeners who don't know blue prism is the one of the leading um automation platforms on the planet i i was fortunate to join uh early on in my career uh, when they first started out uh, opening in offices in the americas and the people always ask well how'd you get this job well it was actually through relationship i, I will tell you the second most important thing besides what you know and what you can do is how you manage relationships and inspire other people. The, the CTO, who at the time was also a solution engineering manager, um, calls me up and says, Chin, would you be interested in taking an opportunity with Blue Prism? I'm like, what? what's Blue Prism? <laughs> uh, at the time, I, was, I just finished up a stint at, at TIPCO. And so TIPCO was one of the leading uh, solution integration platform on the planet. So. Uh, I'm like, I'm not into to building cars with robots. Like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's, it's basically uh, robots, software robots that's actually executing work. I'm like, is it like AI or something? Machine learning or something like that? He's like, yeah, it's close. Uh, and we do integrate to all those different platforms. Let's take a look at it. And so I spent three days with him over a long weekend asking technical questions, evaluations. So I came on as employee... 80, 81, um, as a solution engineer, knowing that I wanted to do more than just going out building demos, building and talking to customers. I wanted to be part of the strategy team. And so um, had helped close some really key deals, uh, took on a lot more work. So your typical solution engineer um, by resume is going up, showing, uh, proving out the technology works, doing the demos, doing a bunch of proof of concepts, telling the story and then close the deal and then move on to the next thing. Um, what I did more than that is I opened up three different offices from Sydney, uh, from Sydney, Tokyo, uh, launched parts of the, the German office, took on all of North America. And then uh, that, that gave me the opportunity to work with a lot of the senior management team, the C-level folks, the CEO, the, the product heads, uh, the, the, the head of sales, um, and then when it came to being able to run an innovation team, so my role now is the global vice president of innovation. My job is to figure out how to use our digital workers to solve very complex problems. And these are billion-dollar problems, uh, things like uh, leveraging um, uh, commu- uh, computer vision to be able to identify threats uh, at an airport. Um, one of the unique things that we're doing right now is how do we s- solve this whole COVID situation, right? It's not about just the vaccine. It's about getting all the ingredients, the supply chain to, at the right price, to create enough vaccines for everybody on the planet. Um, it's, so it's, it's very unique in the stuff that we are doing uh, from solving cures for cancer to being able to find uh, uh, criminals, uh, be able to uh, uh, build the next global digital economy when it comes down to currencies and how banks work. So it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting because um, we, the problems we solve are not your typical problem. And, and it's very interesting how it all works. It is a need fast pace because you just mentioned oh, yeah. COVID and having AI to detect that. And we're talking, it's got to be zero down to a T where it's got to be absolutely, absolutely accurate. And yeah. Blue Prison is on top of that. Yeah, um, it is. And so I would say that, um, you know, 
as a leader in, in the tech field, it's not about just your technical skills because there's always somebody that knows more than you. I guarantee you. It's about how you can take a bunch of really smart people and getting them inspired to solving some really hard problems. Um, on my team, I have a, about a dozen folks that directly reports, reports to me, and their background comes from uh, a data scientist. Uh, one of them used to be a, a movie uh, production pr executive, and that's that creative side. Uh, another one used to sell, sell uh, cranes at the Walmarts, so um, the little coin-operated machines. And she's amazing when, when I'm like, if you can sell a crane to Walmart, I want you on my team, right? <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, it, it's, that's that kind of stuff. And so uh, you have to recognize that um, people's skills and competencies and what drives them is what makes, makes your team very unique and powerful. I, I would say that um, as your listeners are thinking about you know, where to go next and what to do in their career and, and, um, and where it's going to lead them is that to be open. Be open to make mistakes. 80% uh, of all the stuff we do either doesn't go to market or uh, it becomes our internal IP that may be developing new products in the future. Uh, the, the rest of the 20% is what gets to market. And so those are the ones that, that actually generates revenue. So uh, many failures along the way. You got to be able to make mistakes. You got to be able to own them. What quality did you know I had to acquire to notice and get there? Uh, um, to, to take on that role or to, to get recognized to, to take on that role? To take on that role. Okay. And why was it important to you? Because at the time you were well into your career already. And then, of course, in the key part, what, you, what I noticed is, is it's the good old saying, um, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Because, I mean, they approach you. Yeah. You didn't approach uh, them. You didn't cold call like you did years ago, right? But this time with your experience, they approach you now. Well, I, I think um, it's a couple of things. Um, the reason why I think a lot of um, folks struggle in getting recognized for their achievements is because they don't typically broadcast. Uh, it's 50% 50, uh, 50 of who you know. It's also 50% of what you do. Uh, and, and so from that perspective, it's like, yes, they knew that I was a very good solution engineering manager. They know that I was managing a really good team uh, and we were doing some really cool stuff. And then when it comes down to, could you take that skill set and create a massive program out of it to generate revenue? Could they have gone out and hired somebody from a different organization? Absolutely. Um, and and when, when I got the call from our, uh, our chief uh, um, sales officer, now chief revenue officer, uh, Pete O'Neill, he's like, hey, how, how do you feel about running the innovation team? And I said, hey, I would love to. That's always what I wanted to do. There was no hesitation because uh, if you hesitated, then that means that either they made the wrong decision because they thought you were the right guy and, and you were like, oh, well, maybe I'll think about it. Uh, that's not an answer when, when, when the higher-ups are calling you for an answer, right? <laughs> when they ask you to do something, it's kind of like they've already made up their mind. You don't want to second-guess them. And so and then, he, and then the next question, it's the probably more appropriate question is, Yes, I'll take on that job and responsibility. Um, how am I, how are, what's your definition of success? Get a clear understanding of you, what their idea may look like. And here's where I think I can contribute. And now you're already solving that problem. And I think that's where a lot of people don't understand uh, about emotional intelligence and the um, psychology of sales because these C-level guys, they have very limited amount of time. They are juggling multiple projects at the same time. If you're making their life a little easier, make them, make them go, look good for whatever reason, they will not hesitate to sponsor you. And that's what I've been able to do. I, I think that's where I said the other 50% is broadcasting what you do and do well. It's not like I sent out an email every week and said, hey, look at what I've done. It's more like, here's what the team's been able to accomplish. Here's the metrics that you're measuring by to, to be successful. We overcame those obstacles by doing X. Uh, even having the customer call up and say, hey, Chin's team is doing some amazing things and the hearing from multiple different sources versus just you. And that's really how you get into the C-suite. Wow. Absolutely amazing. What you, your team, you yourself have accomplished. Uh, what great insights that you are giving right now. So much nugget uh, from your experience there, you know, with, Let's talk, you know, let's talk a little bit about blueprints. You talk about sure. AI, you know, 
you guys work a little bit with Google. I mean, I'm not sure they're a competitor or maybe collaborate to them too as well. Uh, so the, the, the industry we play in is sometimes called RPA, robotic process automation, or uh, intelligent automation. So uh, Blue Prism is a platform that will automate basically anything inside a software for work. So imagine if you were to hire Superman. Fast, never makes mistakes, never sleep. What would you want that digital worker to do? Some companies have that digital worker going into their accounting systems and doing payment processing. Other customers are using it to do supply chain analysis. Oh, I'm out of toilet paper because of COVID in store ABC. And where is this next shipment need to go into that store? And where is it at? And oh, by the way, send that alert to the store manager so they can stock the shelf. Uh, all the way down to in the banking finance industry. Well, we got an application from Chen. Is it really Chen? We need to run some background checks on him above and beyond just a credit score. Let's validate who he is, who he knows, look into all the publicly available information, and then do a risk assessment to see if we're willing to give Chen a, a $20,000 credit card. So all those activities that's typically um, a lot of different things, that's what Blue Prism can do. All the way from the user interface, which you and I are very familiar with, all the way down to the API calls. And if you want to touch the databases, you can definitely run SQL applications underneath the database itself. So the entire tech stack as it relates to what can be automated. Speaking of hiring Chen, you and your colleague wrote a uh, PFI or some newsletter about an article about hiring for the future. And this article yep. was named Reimagining Work. Can yep. you elaborate more about the future of work and your prediction bias on that? Because again, like everything's going AI and there's, there's guys uh, yep. like myself, like, you know what? I don't need you. I just go to the grocery and check out my own grocery. You know, <laughs> I mean, there you go. That's one worker down. That's one more, one uh, robot up, you yep. see here, and so forth and so on, too. Yep. You give your, your bias on that, on that article. And then yeah, so the listener, article. I'll put it on the comment below, yeah. too. Yeah, absolutely. So that article is just recently released last week, um, December 12th or 11th. Um, and it was written in partnership with the CIO Net. So CIO Net is one of the largest. Uh, groups of, of uh, so professional groups of CIOs, uh, specifically out in the EMEA area. So AstraZeneca, Bayer, Salesforce, those guys contributed into that document. I was one of the lead contributors. So the document covers what the future is going to look like uh, the next 12, 18, 24 months from now uh, when we start to look at full-scale automation at scale, meaning uh, a lot of these companies with COVID situation, lack of skill sets, uh, people um, getting older, right? Uh, guys who are maintaining these old mainframe systems are retiring. What does that mean to all these companies that have to sustain and be able to compete in the workforce or compete in their product market? So what we do is we put out a, a, a white paper. Um, it's a published study or, or business study or scientific study of what that future work looks like. And so um, the synopsis is that even if, even after a world of COVID, the world has changed so much that could you have a digital accountant closing your books for you? Yes, we're already doing that. Um, could you have digital IT help desk? Yes, with ServiceNow's integration, the ServiceNow's application, Salesforce, Call centers, we're already doing that. Um, could you integrate smart, uh, smart systems and solutions and IT devices to smart city applications? Yes. In Japan, we're already doing that. Um, and so when I think about everything that's happening around the world, and thankfully I've been, uh, I'm in a global role, so I see a lot of stuff that folks don't see in the States, is that it's only a matter of time before it gets here. So I have an 11-year-old daughter. And uh, I was talking to the, the head of um, uh, future studies at Harvard, and he had asked Chin, what do you think that future looks like? And I was like, well, when my, by the time my daughter goes to, uh, gets out to the working world, she's going to pick up her phone, and she may have a couple hundred thousand dollars that daddy has given her to start her own business. And she's going to talk to Siri and say, Siri, I have $250,000. I want to open a, a coffee shop. Um, can you find me the right place at my price point with the best supply chain? and implement that right now. And by that voiced activation, all the APIs, the business logic, everything starts to, yeah, you're absolutely right. 
it goes out and initiates the right contract with, with Starbucks, maybe, right? There may be a, a, a Starbucks vendor. Uh, and then uh, she may do a couple of Instagram posts and an advertising, co-branding on YouTube to show how her coffee looks and tastes and the lifestyle that she's living. And then ultimately it could be Amazon that delivers that coffee to you via a drone. You never know, right? And so it's it's that kind of a vision and future is that um, I personally feel like if I'm not a part in contributing that vision uh, and leaving a bit of a legacy behind to my my you know my son and daughter and, and future generation, then other people may have different moralities, different cultures that could influence it negatively in a way that I would never want my my kids to live in that type of world. So that's why I'm doing this. Uh, yes, the paycheck's nice, um, but leaving a mark and saying I did that or I built this—that's that's important to me. Chen, it's been a pleasure talking to you, <laughs> and it's such great insight. What does it mean to be a bone man? Oh wow! You, I know you gave me that question, and and. Um... Uh, I've been seriously thinking about it, and so after having a glass of wine with my wife last night, I was sitting here thinking, well, "What? What is? What does it mean to be a Hmong man?" I think um, we, as Hmong people, and we look back at our lineage, we've always been able to adapt. Whether it's leaving China, you know, whether it's going through the whole communist situation, and then all the Hmong people are spread amongst the planet, um, I think we are probably the most adaptable culture in the world. And I think what we as a Hmong men or Hmong people in general needs to realize that we have given, been given a great opportunity. Uh, otherwise, many of us will still be rice farmers, right? Um, and so when I look at that, what does it mean to be a Hmong man? It means that uh, we are here to leave a legacy, good or bad, depending on what uh, on your take. Uh, we're here to pave the way for others. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this, this type of a podcast to inspire others that uh, have not been able to go down that track and let other folks know that, hey, there are people who've, who've been there, who've suffered and, 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 and has accomplished things. And then uh, number three is be adaptable. Um, you know, when I started my music career, <laughs> yeah, I was just DJing for free, you know, and, and fast forward 10 years into the future. Yeah, I was, you know, I was opening up for several people. It was great. Um, but that's what I'm saying. You got to be adaptive because in the world today, you just don't know where the next opportunity is going to be. And, and that's where just keep your eyes open, ears open and stay focused. You just said inspire. You are in your early 40s now and give me an advice for the no, give yourself an advice for the younger late teens, Chin, if he was pursuing in that corporate lifestyle. When I was 17 in high school, I was worried about being the only Asian kid, the only one of the only Hmong kids in Dallas in a, in a public school, trying to impress a, a typical girl, American girl, whatever. And my advice to him would be, don't worry too much about that moment. Uh, because those moments would pale in comparison to what you've been able to accomplish. Um, when people tell you, you know, your skin color is different, you don't speak the language very well, or uh, you don't have the right skill set, or, oh, you're, you're not qualified for this or that, um, take it as a positive, because the more no's you hear, the faster that yes is coming. And I can, I'm a guarantee, I'm, I will put a dollar to that because I have been told no so many times. And, and um, it gets to the point to where I smile when I hear no. And I'm like, okay, great. That just means that yes is just right in the corner. And that's that's where I think um, staying focused and staying positive. And, and on top of that, uh, I would tell my, my 17 year old self is that you need to surround yourself with some very positive people. You're only as good as, as the people you hang around with. And if that's a negative influence to you, I will tell you that the friends that I have that, that are in my high schools that are uh, that I still keep in relations with, they're all successful. The ones that aren't, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, yeah, we may be friends on Facebook, but I don't talk to them. But the guys that I call up and say, hey, I just closed this massive deal. I just want to let you know. 
you know, or, hey, we didn't get it. It sucks. I'm going to have to eat ramen noodles for the next two weeks. I mean, those that, those kind of discussions, they're, they're always there to back you up and say, hey, don't worry, you'll get the next one, right? And then when you have time to celebrate, you celebrate and then you, you know, spend time with the loved ones that you have and uh, let the family members know how, how good or bad you're doing. And that's just, that's how life is. I think that's probably the biggest thing I've learned in, in my 42 years on this planet so far is that uh, it's not only what's, it's who you inspire, but um, who you are inspired by. And that's, that's it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beast that it feeds itself. Lastly, how can we get hold of you? Where do you find you? Give it a quick pitch on that, and that wraps it up. Yeah, best thing is uh, I'm pretty avid on LinkedIn. Uh, so if you guys are following me or have a LinkedIn account, um, that's probably the best way. Facebook is typically what I say for for family, families and friends. LinkedIn is where I put all my my podcasts, my publications, uh, anything that's business related or professionally related is all on LinkedIn. Even if you Google my name, Chin Moi you'll find all the articles that's been written about it from, from all the PR campaigns. And so um, uh, there are rumors that I might be writing a book. We'll see uh, if I had the time. We'll <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best way. And I think you can probably put the link down there for, for anybody who wants to reach out to me. And I'm available for any type of career counseling, uh, advice, those type of things. Um, but I will ask that when, when, when your viewers, listeners sends, sends a question, um, don't send me questions like, oh, well, how much does this job pay? You know, right? I always get those questions. I would rather say, here's what I'm willing to do. Where can I focus my, my talent? That is probably worth more than the $100,000. Thank you so much. A brother from another mother. Oh, yeah. And lastly, happy holidays and Merry yes. Christmas to you, man. Thank you right, so, you so much. Well, that ends our episode. If you haven't yet, visit our website at www.momentalk.com or find us on Facebook, Moment Talk. Lastly, if you're listening on, on us on a podcast from Stitcher or Spotify, Google Play or iTunes, please give us an honest rating. 